0: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships.
1: Hello, and thanks for downloading the No Bullshit Leadership podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the life-changing power of great leadership, I have two exciting pieces of news. The first is that my new book, No Bullshit Change, is out now in hardback, Kindle, or on Audible. And the second is that I've launched a brand new online no-bullshit leadership training program. It's designed for anybody who has ambitions they want to fulfill, places they want to go, and people they want to help thrive. If that's you, head over to my website, chris-hurst.com, to sign up for more information. That's chris-hurst.com. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm Chris Hurst and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. Leadership is difficult but not complicated, and I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport or politics. Lord Karan Bilimoria is one of the country's leading entrepreneurs. A business leader and politician, he was born in Hyderabad, India, but moved to London in the 1980s, where he qualified as a Chartered Accountant and subsequently studied law at Cambridge. In 1989, he co-founded Cobra Beer from flat in Solemn, a brand that has become globally recognised. In 2006, he was appointed to the House of Lords, where he sits as a crossbench peer. He was awarded a CBE in 2004 for services to business and entrepreneurship, and is the Chancellor of the University of Birmingham. It's quite a CV, uh, and that's just the highlights. Welcome to the podcast, Lord Billamoria. Thank you very much. Let's start in the best place to start, which is at the beginning. Uh, So (laughs) you were born in India. Can you tell us just a, a little bit about your early life?
2: Yes, I was born in Hyderabad, a large city in South India. And my father was in the Indian Army in the Gurkha Regiment, and uh, we moved around a lot. I went to seven different schools. I ended up at boarding school in the Nilgiri Hills, 8,000 feet high in South India. And uh, it was wonderful. I got to know the whole of India thanks to my father being posted all over India from the north of India, right down to the tip of India and Kerala to Kashmir, to Rajasthan deserts in the West, uh, to Kalimpong and Darjeeling in the Northeast on the Chinese border. I've got to know every part of India, and I love India. Uh, and it taught me to be very adaptable because you had to make friends. You were a complete stranger in the place you would arrive. And uh, that I think has stood me in good stead. And I come from a, the smallest minority community in the world. I'm a Zoroastrian Parsi. Uh, we, we left Iran, uh, what is today Iran, over a thousand years ago and settled in India. And we kept the Zoroastrian religion. And uh, the most famous Zoroastrian person people have heard of is Freddie Mercury of Queen. And of course, the Tata group of companies, uh, as well as the Punawalas who have made the AstraZeneca vaccine, two billion doses during the pandemic, the largest vaccine manufacturers in the world, as well as Zubin Mehta, the conductor. Uh, and of course, now through Cobra Beer, and and that, so growing up in this tiny community in, in, was also very special. So I was very lucky. I skipped a couple of years and went to university at 16. I graduated at 19 in commerce in India. And then I came to the UK to study for seven years.
1: And so you, to, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm pre-seeing here, but you did chartered, you chartered accountant and then you did law, which to, to my kind of stereotypical imagining, is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum to an entrepreneur. Yes. We, we were you always determined to essentially branch out on your own? Did you see those as kind of tools that were going to enable you to, you know, do your own thing ultimately?
2: Yes, I always wanted to start my own business. My My maternal great-grandfather was a big influence on me. He was somebody who was an entrepreneur who started his own business, built up into a sizable business group in South India, did a lot of public service, was a great family man, great philanthropist, and actually ended up serving in the Indian equivalent of the House of Lords, the Rajya Sabha. So in many ways, four generations later, I've followed in his footsteps here in the UK. And it was, I think, his influence and wanting to be an entrepreneur. But I didn't think I would do as quickly as I did. I knew that with the accountancy and law, I had the perfect educational training for business. And I thought initially I might be an investment banker for a while and then start my own business later down the road. But then I came up with the idea for Cobra when I was at Cambridge. And I decided to take the leap in my 20s, my mid-20s. and sort of let's go for it. I've got nothing to lose. I've got no mortgage, no family, no responsibilities. And I really want to do this. And I love this big idea of mine.
1: Right. Well, let's get into it then. So where did it come from? I mean, it's interesting because, because beer, people have been making beer. So millennia right but you saw something that others hadn't seen or at least a gap i mean in the market that others hadn't seen
2: yeah i saw a gap in the market and a market in the gap Uh, I, i most business ideas come from being passionate about something on the one hand and hating something on the other hand and i loved beer from the time i was allowed to drink it in fact my maternal grandfather who the one who served in the air force had been to university in birmingham in the UK and then learned how to fly while he was at university and then joined the Royal Indian Air Force. He took a liking to beer from the time he was a student in England. And my mother went to Birmingham University as well. And the family house in Hyderabad, I still remember being allowed sips of beer from my grandfather's beer tankard, and I just loved beer. And when I came to England, I was very disappointed by the lager beers in this country. I found them, quite frankly, undrinkable. They were fizzy, gassy, harsh, bland, bloating, difficult to drink on their own, and very difficult to drink with food because they were so bloating. And you want it with curry in particular. I would go to Indian restaurants regularly, Indian food, spicy food. You want something cold and refreshing. You have a lager beer, but if it's bloating and bland, and it just was a terrible accompaniment. And I took an instant liking to English ale, to real ale, which my English friends introduced me to. To this day, I love ale, but I found I couldn't drink ale with food let alone Indian food, it was too heavy and too bitter. But that's where the idea evolved. Why don't I come up with a beer that has the refreshment of a lager and the smoothness of an ale combined that will be balanced and easy to drink, less gassy and smooth, but also the perfect accompaniment to all food and in particular spicy food and Indian food. So that was my idea, to produce something that's different, something that's better, and ideally something will change the marketplace. <laughs> Forever.
1: You had an idea, and I mean, I think clearly it's an enormously successful idea, but I think lots and lots of people have ideas, but they rarely get beyond, you know, as you say, musing in the bath or lying in bed at night sort of with this idea, but people don't do anything with it. What did you do next? The first
2: thing you have to do is to take the step to be an entrepreneur and not to go down the line of a job, in my case, investment banking was to take that leap. And I teamed up with a childhood friend from Hyderabad who also wanted to start in business. So I had a business partner, somebody I could really trust. And I, I, and our families had known each other for four generations. I had this big idea, but I didn't have any money. I didn't have any experience. So the big idea had to wait, but we had to start. And I started by building up experience, importing products from India and selling them in the UK. And my first venture was importing polo sticks. Because I played came, I played polo for Cambridge and we beat Oxford in the Varsity Match and I organised the first Cambridge University polo tour of India and after we came back from that polo tour which I captained we came back and I brought some polo sticks with me and started selling them and ended up selling Harrods and Lily Whites and the Royal Family Saddlers we then imported fashion items which we sold to boutiques like Whistles I imported leather and silk goods that we sold to places like Selfridges just building up experience, lots of dead ends. I mean, we wanted to import bath towels. We had the agency, one of the biggest textile companies in India, we couldn't sell a single bath towel because we couldn't compete with the Portuguese. Hyderabad is famous for pearls. And we thought we'd corner the world pearl market. We couldn't sell one string of pearls because we couldn't compete with the Japanese. So there were lots of dead ends, but it was great experience. In a short period of about a year, we built up experience. And in the meantime, we got a chance introduction to the biggest independent brewery in India, who were interested in making and exporting beer for us.
1: You've had a year or so of you know b- building your business, building your experience, building your money, and then you have you as you describe a chance meeting with a large brewer, a brewer
2: in India, and then what? So, so that story of the chance introduction to the brewery when we were looking at importing seafood from India, and we discovered that this brewery. The seafood company was a subsidiary of the biggest independent brewery in India based in Bangalore. We then asked them if they're interested in be- exporting beer. They'd never exported beer before, but they were very interested in exporting beer to the UK. Then turned out they were not only the biggest independent brewery in India, but they were very successful. And they were close family friends of my business partner's uncle, who was our mentor. So there was that trust and family connection. And on top of all that, they didn't have a beer brand that was appropriate to us. Their top selling brands, were, one was called Pals, which is the name for dog food in Britain. And the other one was Knockouts, which is an 8% beer, with a boxer having knocked out another boxer on the label. And so they said, look, this beer that you've described to us, we don't make a beer like this. And quite frankly, your brand is going to fail because you young guys have no idea about beer. You've never sold any beer before. All our competitors from India, have failed, except Kingfisher, the biggest Indian beer brand in India, you're probably going to fail. So why don't you choose your own brand name? So when it fails, it's your brand that fails, and we will have the prestige of exporting beer to the UK. Now, just look at that luck. My most valuable asset is the Cobra beer brand. And so we were able to choose our own brand. The next thing they said is, look, we don't make a beer that this taste you described, come to India, sit with our brewmaster and create the beer from scratch. So it took nine months from the time we made contact with the brewery, to the first batch being brewed, bottled, and dispatched to the UK on, in PO containers from Bangalore to Southampton and then to London. And the first batch, when I tasted it, I knew it was on the right track, but it was not right. But it was good enough to sell to consumers, to get some feedback, to then adapt and just continue to refine the recipe. It took us about three rounds of feedback from consumers before we actually stabilized on the taste.
1: The other thing that I hear from successful entrepreneurs is kind of, which I think is, is, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I hear from what you've said is don't spend ages and ages waiting to get the perfect product before you go and get it into the market. Get something that's good enough into market and start learning quickly about what the market wants. And I guess also learning about how to sell it because it's not just about you learning how to make beer. You've got to learn how to break into what's a pretty cluttered market, I guess, in the UK.
2: Yes, it, uh, there are many ways of expressing what you've just said. So it's don't let best become the enemy of the good. You, you need to have a minimum viable product to start. And of course, you're striving for perfection. To this day, I'm striving for perfection. To this day, the consumer doesn't even know, but I'm constantly perfecting the recipe because it's perfection beyond what even a consumer can imagine. Because to me, it's always striving to get better and better. I've got 145 gold medals for Cobra and we've got to keep getting more gold medals. So that's the first thing. And when you've got that minimal viable product, you know, it's good enough for consumers to give you some feedback. And the asset test is getting repeat orders. And from day one, even with that product that I knew was a little bit too heavy, a little bit too sweet, a little bit too hazy, we got 99% reorders and people loved it. So that gives you the confidence to keep going.
1: And where did the name come from? Did you
2: come up with that as well? Was that a sort of moment of inspiration? Or The name is, (laughs) I was given an illustration of making mistakes. I mean, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And one of my my early mistakes was we chose the name Panther as in leopard. And in fact, we designed the label when I went to India and I forgot about the label. I focused on the liquid and getting the beer right. And just before bottling my partner, Arjun Reddy, who was based, he stayed in London while I went to Bangalore to develop the product. He tried to pre-sell the beer before it was shipped from India. And he said, people don't like the name Panther. For whatever. There's completely no reason why they didn't like the name Panther. They just didn't like the name Panther. The second choice name was Cobra. And I asked them to ask those same customers, would they buy it if it was called Cobra? And I rushed to the brewery the next day via the printers. And for the only time in my life, I was hoping something would not be done. I asked the printers, have you printed those Panther labels? They said, no, we haven't. I said, don't print them until I tell you. And the, within 24 hours, Arjun called me back in Bangalore and said, they love the name Cobra. and. There is no logical reason for that, but I asked my brother who had an advertising agency in Hyderabad, I said, "Another, I need your help. We need to design the Cobra beer label from scratch in 10 days, the beer's about to be shipped in two weeks. And my brother helped me out and we created Cobra from scratch. And Cobra's turned out to be a really good name because it's short, it's sharp, it's punchy, it's memorable, as an entrepreneur, You come up with the idea, but don't go forward without testing it with the consumer first.
1: You've got the the brand name, you've got the brewer, you've got the bottles on a container on their way to the UK. How did you, what did you do about finding places to actually sell it? Because, you know, I think obviously, you know, all businesses, you need a product. But in my experience, the hardest bit for any business is to find customers. How did you break into the market, which I presume is quite a, well, it must be a very competitive market. There's a lot of beer brands and there's a lot of big players in the market. How did you break in? How did you get customers? Yeah, so
2: the first container, half of it went up to Newcastle, and there was a distributor in the north who was going to distribute it and sell it for us in the north. In the south, we were initially going to go through a distributor, but we ended up doing it ourselves. And we had a strategy that was very clear. We targeted the top Indian restaurants first. We said if we could get into the best Indian restaurants and they sell it, then other restaurants will sell it. We didn't have the money to market. We couldn't even afford a branded beer glass. So our only item of marketing was a table tent card. And I said, the advantage we have is we have this big bottle of beer because the only bottle the brewery could make for us was a double size 650 ml bottle, because that is the standard size and shape that all beer in India Even to this day, 85% of beer is sold in big bottles, double-sized bottles. That's the authentic way. And they said, we're not gonna make small bottles for you because you may not be around. If you're around in a year's time, we'll make small bottles for you. And they said, forget draft beer. We're not gonna send kegs all the way to the UK and empty kegs all the way back. That's unviable. So we had no option but this double-sized bottle, which is completely alien in the UK market. They wanted small bottles or draft. Now, how do you go when you've got such a big obstacle You've got to convert that obstacle into an opportunity. So we would go to the restaurant and say, this is the authentic size Indian bottle. It's double size. So you're selling double the quantity of consumers in one go. And you sh- people share Indian food. They can share the beer, rather it's my beer, your beer. The next thing is a big bottle of beer on the restaurant table. Consumers will get to know the brand. And people from other tables will say, what's that? It looks like a bottle of wine. Oh, it's not a bottle of wine. It's a bottle of beer. Let me try it. And it spreads like wildfire around the restaurant. And people recommend it by word of mouth. So that was the idea was to get the beer on the restaurant tables. I didn't have the money to advertise. I didn't have the money to get it on supermarket shelves where it would gather dust because nobody would know my product. My breakthrough strategy was to get people to discover the beer through the restaurants. And then when it was well known enough, get it on the supermarket shelves so that they would then buy it from the supermarket shelves to drink at home, either on its own or with Indian food. It's a great story.
1: And so, so
2: the, then the business starts to go like
1: an absolute train, right? You get enormous growth. The business rapidly becomes a millions and millions of turnover business growing very quickly. But then a problem
2: arises, almost too much growth. So we grew at 40 4.0% compound annual growth rate for the first 18 years. We were one of the fastest growing companies in the country. And and then the financial crisis hit in 2007, 2008. And we had always sacrificed our bottom line for growth. As a fast-moving consumer good, we knew that we needed a critical mass of volumes to create a brand. And our mission was to produce the finest ever Indian beer and make it a global beer brand. And we focused on the growth. We focused on the volumes. We sacrificed the bottom line which meant also raising lots of debt to finance the growth because we had no money of our own. And we took on too much debt. And when the financial crisis hit, our whole valuation was based on growth. And then suddenly growth had no value and cash became not just king, but emperor. And we, one of our biggest financiers said that we're not gonna finance you anymore and forced us to put the company up for sale. And we had to go through a sale process after Lehman Brothers went past when nobody wanted to buy anything. And so for nine months, we survived still having to grow. And in the end, I nearly lost my business. One of our creditors lost patience and put a winding up order and we had restructured the whole business and that all collapsed. So on the 22nd of May, 2009, I nearly lost everything. And then we had to go through a very painful process for the following week where we had to bid along with Molson Coors, who were the joint venture partners we'd agreed to take the business forward and restructure it. We had to bid to buy the business, and we could have been outbid by other beers, other breweries that were competing to buy the business, and we won the bid. It was run completely above board by Rothschilds and PwC, and I managed to save my business. But for that one week, I nearly lost 18 years' worth of work in my Creation, my my baby.
1: Wow, wow! And now, so so that's two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. I guess if that was around the time of Lehman collapse. So that's that? so that was, I guess, forty. So I think you said eighteen years of forty percent compound growth. Then you have this, you know, this kind of terrible crisis. But there's been. Where are we now? We're another sort of it's fourteen years since then, exactly. So that was kind of in the middle, roughly speaking. Of the business's life, what and, and how has how life as the leader of the business, the owner of the business, the I guess the CEO of the business, how has your business life changed since that inflection point?
2: Yes, you changed completely from being an entrepreneur-led, fast-growing company to being in a joint venture with the fifteen billion-dollar one of the largest brewers in the world, Molson Coors, and I'm the, I've been the chairman for all these years. My team integrated with the team at Molson Coors, and it's been run on a completely different basis where earlier growth was number one priority. Now it's been actually the bottom line has been a priority and growth has not been the priority. And I could have done that at any time and I didn't. So now we've been doing that. So it's been very solid, resilient, even during the pandemic. We did very well because our supermarket sales were sold now in not only 7,000 restaurants, not just Indian, but Turkish and Thai restaurants, Chinese restaurants, gastro pubs, but every major supermarket chain, cash and carry, and exported to 40 countries around the world. So our, our off-trade supermarket sales saved us during the pandemic.
1: So you've experienced this extraordinary career where you've been this incredibly successful entrepreneur with this explosive growth, becoming one of the best-known, best-loved brands in the country. You still are responsible for one of the best-known brands in the country, but now I guess within a in a corporate environment. What has your time growing, developing Cobra both before and after that change, what has that taught you about leadership? Because I guess you have a lot of people working yes, for Yes, the
2: Molson Coors business in the UK alone is 2,000 people in which we're fully integrated into. And what it's taught me is as a leader, as an entrepreneurial leader, it's amazing how you can it's infectious, that people want to work for an unknown brand and an unknown individual. Why? Because if you have that passion and faith and belief, people will want to join you on that journey and join you on that, that path where they know and believe that you're going to succeed. So I think an entrepreneurial Lead, I built up a, a very diverse team. I built up a mini United Nations of people from all over the world with different cultures and mindsets and backgrounds. And there was an, a creative buzz. I mean, research has since shown that more diverse companies are more innovative and you create an environment as a leader and entrepreneur leader, where you trust your team, where you encourage them to come up with ideas and make them happen where if you fail, but you move on and you learn from it. And we had that sort of an environment. So we're constantly coming up with new products and new ways of doing things and innovative I- advertising. To this day, if you look at a Cobra beer glass, It is the most unusual, beautiful beer glass in the world. And I'm not exaggerating. It's different. So everything we do has that edge to it. So even in a joint venture with a big global company, it's in a way the best of both worlds. It's that entrepreneurial leadership combined with a multi-billion dollar global New York Stock Exchange listed company. And you get the best of both worlds. And I had a little bit of an advantage in that I trained with EY, with Ernst Young, which is one of the largest companies in the world in London. So I'd experienced for four years what it's like to work in a giant multinational and the professional way of working in systems and the negative sides as well. So I had some experience because many entrepreneurs have never had that experience. I had the advantage of that experience.
1: Are you running this incredibly successful business? But you were appointed to the House of Lords, and I think you were the first Zoroastrian Parsi to become, to to join the House of Lords? What's it like joining the House of Lords?
2: (laughs) Uh, I was the third youngest peer when I joined, and it was a real privilege. I've always been interested in that world. I, in fact, thought of becoming an MP. A few years after I started Cobra Rebirth, I was given the opportunity and I turned it down because I said my business would never take off, and I'm really glad I did. And then I got this opportunity to join the House of Lords, which has enabled me to contribute to public life and as a parliamentarian, but also to carry on running my business. And I find that my experiences outside parliament enable me to bring real world experience, which I can bring to bear in my parliamentary contributions and debate and challenging government. And that's been very useful. Whereas a lot of my contemporaries and my peers are much older, and they've got the advantage of huge amounts of wisdom and experience. But I bring to bear that real-time, real-life experience on a day-to-day basis in Parliament. Well, I'm pretty passionate about that. I mean, I know there's a debate at the moment, isn't there, in the country,
1: not not so much in the House of Lords, but in the House of Parliament, about the extent to which people should have other jobs, either alongside or before they become MPs. The debate about the fact there's an awful lot of people who are MPs, but also I suspect people in the House of Lords who, essentially professional politicians who've only been in politics, and I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing per se, but I think it's, in my opinion, a very good thing to have at least some other people who bring, you know, perspectives, whether it be from the worlds of business, whether it be from the worlds of the arts, whatever it is. And possibly again for the same reason you were talking about the success you had in building your business, which is you have a diverse team. Diverse teams get to more interesting answers,
2: and you know, you know it feels like that's how it should work in politics as well. I don't think people appreciate enough how special the House of Lords is. The House of Commons, you're representing a constituency and there are many career politicians in the House of Commons. The advantage of the House of Lords compared with any other parliamentary chamber in the world is it has the greatest depth and breadth of expertise of any parliamentary chamber in the world, multiplied by 20. You have world experts in just about Every field, whether they're scientists, doctors, lawyers, former cabinet ministers, entrepreneurs, journalists, authors you name it, we have those world experts in the House of Lords that can bring that expertise to bear in whatever legislation or debate that we're dealing with. And that's the added value that the House of Lords has, which is absolutely inspirational and amazing. And I mean, I I attend and I may not even take part, but I will always come away having learned a huge amount from my colleagues who are such experts.
1: I'm going to ask you a controversial question, which by the way, the intention is not to put you on the spot. You can just refuse to answer it. So that's fine. But I'm genuinely interested in your opinion on this. It's Another controversial topic at the moment is about how people get into the House of Lords and notably resignation honours. Do you think that's, what's your view on that?
2: Well, I think that the most valuable part of the House of Lords, the 20% minimum independent crossbench peers, of which I'm privileged to be a member, and these are people who, on the one hand, are made up of former cabinet secretaries, former heads of the Foreign Service, former chiefs of defense staff, but also of what Tony Blair created, what we called people's peers, where anyone can apply to become a member of the House of Lords, and you go through a very rigorous appointment system to become a member, and only a couple are introduced per year. So the crossbenchers on the whole tend to be people who do come from a variety of different backgrounds and add a great deal of value to the House of Lords. The political peers that are appointed, there's some very good political peers that are appointed. But on the other hand, there are some people who are appointed who people say, well, have they really got the experience or the credibility to be a member of the House of Lords? And I'm afraid there are some of those people.
1: So you have had a hugely successful career in business, a hugely successful career in politics. You, in that time, have met numerous other people who've had, you know, very successful entrepreneurs, business people, I'm sure many politicians in the UK and beyond. What are the, do you see common traits amongst successful leaders? Do you see some things in all of these diverse people you meet that makes you think those are the, you know, the real successful leaders do these one, two, three things really well? Or do
2: you think it's very dominant? I think that you mentioned brands. And there is a way that uh, I learned this first when we formed our joint venture with Molson Coors, that what makes an extraordinary brand is uh, an extraordinary brand is based on an undeniable brand truth. So in our case, a less gassy, extra smooth beer. It's an extraordinary brand, delivers a relevant and consistent experience. So you've got to be able to do whatever you do Time after time, in my case, hundreds of millions of pints and bottles and cans of beer that are as good as the one before and consistent. The third thing is extraordinary brands never cut any corners. They never compromise on their principles. The fourth thing is extraordinary brands have an instantly recognizable and iconic look. The fifth thing is extraordinary brands create loyal brand champions. So you have people who love your brand, look out for your brand, disappointed if it's not available. And the sixth thing, is extraordinary brands deliver extraordinary profits. So to be an extraordinary brand, you've got to do all six of those things. And that you can apply to a brand of beer, like an FMCG product, you can apply it to an institution, a university, to anything. And, and when it comes to leaders, I there are many different definitions of what makes a great leader, but a leader's got to be able to get trust from people. And one of my professors at Harvard Business School gave a lecture on trust during the pandemic. And if I summarize that one hour lecture by Frances Fry into one minute, she says to get trust from people, it's a triangle. You've got to have authenticity. So as a leader, are you an authentic leader? Is it the real you? You've got to have logic. Do you have the capability to deliver what you're promising to deliver? Do you have the knowledge, the know-how, the professional capability to do what you say you're going to do? And third, empathy. Are you in it for yourself or are you in it for them? And those three points of the triangle, authenticity, logic, and empathy is what gets trust. And that quite frankly is what a leader's got to be. Leader's got to be authentic. leaders has got to be able to do, lead from the front, do what they say, have the ability to zoom out and look at things in big picture, but also go right into the detail if necessary. And the leader, most importantly, must really care. And that last point of empathy, another way of expressing it is, service leadership. Truly great leaders are service leaders. So my father was a great leader. He was in charge of 350,000 troops. He led his battalion in war. And My father, to this day, I hear about how his soldiers loved him and because he cared about his soldiers. And there's no better example of this than Nelson Mandela. And Arch- Archbishop Desmond Tutu told me this about him. He said, Nelson Mandela was a magnanimous leader. When he went for a banquet, he'd go into the kitchen and go and thank the staff and meet the chefs and meet the waiters. If he got out of a helicopter, he just run out of the helicopter, goes thank the pilots, meet everyone, and go. To be a magnanimous leader is also, to me, very important.
1: I've got two final questions. You've met loads of incredible people through your career. What is the best advice you've ever been
2: given? I've been given lots of advice, but I would say the best advice I was given was by my own father. When I started In work, I was about to start working for me. Why? I was on a holiday in India. My father had become a general. And I said, dad, can you give me some advice about work? He said, come and see me in my office. I had to get an appointment from his ADC, from his equerry to to actually get this advice in this big giant office. And I can picture talking to you now, my father giving me this advice. And the best advice he gave me was this. He said, son, you're starting at the bottom. You'll be given lots of jobs and tasks. The first thing you do when you're given a task is do it. The next thing is do that little bit extra that you were not asked to do. And that's the best advice I've given in my life. Because what my father was saying, always take initiative, always be innovative, always be creative, and always go the extra mile. I mean, that is great advice for anybody at any time,
1: isn't it? Not just people starting out at work. And my final question, you've achieved so much both in business and in politics. What next?
2: You know, this this cliched corny saying that success is not a destination, it's a journey, is absolutely true. And I genuinely believe that I have I've been lucky to have been given all the opportunities this wonderful country has given me as an immigrant. I think immigration is wonderful for Britain. And without immigration, we wouldn't be the sixth largest economy in the world. And I I just feel that I have been able to do all I've done, but I've got lots more to do. I've just started a new business that I've started, a food brand called General Bill Canteen, named after my father. I'm about to embark on some research at Cambridge University, which I'm very excited about. And I think you've just got to have this constantly curious mindset, this growth mindset, as people say, of always wanting to learn more, and grow as an individual. And I feel I've got so much more still to learn and still to contribute. In many ways, I feel, even with Cobra Beer, we could be doing so much more. We could be even bigger in the UK with a household name, but we could be many times bigger here, we could be bigger globally, and I've still got to fulfill that mission of a global beer brand. So I just, that's my attitude is there's, there's always lots more to be done. And I learned this from my younger son who once said, Dad, you've got to live as if you're going to die tomorrow and learn as if you're going to live forever and i said josh where did you get that he said Dad, mahatma gandhi of course
1: i think that's a great i think that's a great place to end and it sounds like you're going to be pretty busy so you've got to, you know, i you better let you go and get on with all of that growth and learning lord billamoria it's been absolutely delightful having you on thank you so much there's so much great stuff in there and uh, thank you for your time
2: it's a great pleasure thank you very much thank you